So good to see everybody. I know others will jump in from uh, checking in their kids in just a second. So good to see everybody. So great to be together. I just burnt my tongue. Anybody ever have that happen? Is that not the worst thing ever? Because it's not just like a one-off moment, but my week is now ruined, but that's okay. It's all good. We're in a series right now. Uh, as you know, most of you guys know, uh, fr- uh, called From Redemption to Recycling, looking at what we feel are some of the most important topics, questions in our moment, and it's been a blast. Heard so much great feedback uh, from people and just what we're wrestling with. Uh, we had a, uh, quite a long, it was a longer teaching last week on sexual formation. It was a video teaching. Uh, I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you that once in a while we can do that. One of the things I feel is sometimes it's amazing to bring great communicators in, even though we don't maybe have them live in the room with us. But uh, what was shared last week I thought was thoughtful and uh, important for uh, us. So thanks for hanging in there. And I've heard some great things even from that. So the plan is this week, we're going to talk about the apocalypse. So glad you came. So you're so pumped, I know. Then next week, we're going to talk about creation care. Very, very, I've very much become, we, we've become very passionate about this idea of stewarding the planet and creation care. And then what we're going to have is we're going to have two weeks at the end where it's just going to be like freaking rapid fire, where we're just going to take anything and everything and throw it up and take a few minutes around each thing to talk about it. And I just think it's going to be helpful. If you have questions, there are outlets for questions. One is just emailing the church email account. If you ever need that, it's just hello at mypraxis.church. Or um, what you can do is you can go to mypraxis.church slash questions, and you can put those in there anonymously, and we'll make sure to, uh, to, to get a hold of some of those things. Sound like a plan? Sound good? Now, my friends, I know in a, a room like this that there are all sorts of backgrounds. Some of you, like me, grew up in maybe something called apocalyptic fever. Anybody? Um, so I grew up in a really great church. My dad's a pastor. This was not as much him, not, not at all, but the evangelical world that I grew up in was very, very interested, especially in the book of Revelation and what it means and prophecy in the future and this thing called the rapture. And some of you were like, what? We're going to get there. Just hang tight. Um, Others of you I know in this room, this is like so green and new, depending on how you grew up. Um, You know, some of us have had traumatic experiences and need therapy, and you're like, yes, you do. Others of us, this is brand, brand new. I was even thinking this week, and I think I've shared this story with our community before, that I remember in junior high school coming home um, from school, and it was right around those pivotal years where I could kind of walk home and get home, and nobody was home. And normally people were home. And about after half an hour, I started to sweat under my arms a little because I thought there's something going on here. And then an hour went by and an hour and a half went by. And as like a grade seven kid, I was like on the verge of tears because I thought my family had been raptured. Anybody with me? And turns out they were just at Metro doing a long shop, right? And everybody kind of came back and the world is as it is. And so we have all sorts of experiences with this. People in our moments are quite fascinated. Think of things like from The Walking Dead, right? And shows that we engage ourselves in to things like the, one of the top grossing book sales series called Left Behind. There is, in our imagination as, as humans, there's something that sparked around the end. And maybe some of you, like me, 
grew up in a, a culture that literally wanted to scare the hell out of you. And I say that as like not a swear word, but like a legit posture. And others of you, maybe this is just brand new. But I want to take some time and I want to talk about uh, eschatology. Eschatology is just this picture of the end or final events in history. You know, Bill Maher, in his little docu, I don't even know what it is. It was, I'll say is this. I, Bill Maher is who he is, but the way the series and the, and the film was cut together was very, very interesting and religious. And he says this, he's standing in Megiddo, just outside Israel, in Israel, sorry, saying this. This is what Bill Maher said. Here I am, standing in the spot where many Christians believe the world is going to end. And it's the place where the book of Revelation says Jesus Christ will come down to end the world and save the people who believe in him. And he starts this film kind of talking about fanatical religious beliefs. So is this a story we're caught up in? Is there a valley somewhere where it's just all going to end? I know you're just asking this question. You're so thrilled. You're so excited. Let's talk about it. You want to talk about it? Is this okay? All right? Hang tight. We're not, I promise we're not that free. We are weird, but we're not that weird. Okay. Now I'll say this. In the last number of years, there has been this popularization around eschatology. And I'll say this, that the popular evangelical eschatology has led to, just before we talk about some texts and stuff, I'll say this, this world, the popular evangelical eschatological kind of engagement has led to a few things in our moment. One, for a lot of us, it's led to fear. A lot of people in the church, like in the church, are afraid of how things are going to shape up. And I, you know, I know we should just wait kind of to the climax of the teaching and, you know, wait. But that, that's just sad. That to me is just so sad that a lot of people are caught up in fear. It's also led this popular evangel- uh, evangelical eschatological viewpoint. These viewpoints have also led to the neglect of our planet. A lot of what people have believed, and we'll talk more obviously about this next week, but a lot of what we've believed around eschatology has led us to not care for the earth that we inhabit, which is really sad. And then I'll say this, some of this fever around eschatology has also led to an over-obsession of getting people into heaven. And it's led to some things, even that we do Evangel- evangelistically that are very unique. Now, please hear, not what I'm, please hear what I'm not saying. Certainly, we are engaging as a church and seeing people come to Christ, and we believe that eternal life starts now and will bleed into eternity. But some of what we've seen around eschatology has led people not only to live in fear, to neglect the planet because it's all going to blow up someday. That's what a lot of people think. It's also led to this idea that you just got to pray a prayer to get into heaven when you die, and the whole story at times begins to unfold. And my thing is this, what, what we believe about the future is actually how we'll live in the present. You know that? And this is the, this is the mark of many people's lives. I actually believe this. What we believe about the future, what you and I and what we believe as a community believe about the future will in turn influence how we live in the present. So let's do this. Let's talk about the rapture. (laughs) This is going to be fun. (laughs) The apocalypse. And many, many questions come in over the years. How should, and this is a fantastic question, how should you and I read the book of Revelation? 
I actually think these things are, are really important. Now, here's the thing. We can disagree on some of these things, and I am totally okay with that. I will let you know when some of this is just my opinion and some of where I've grown in. I, you know here, you, nobody's being force-fed or spoon-fed here. We want people to grow in these ideas, but I actually do think they're important because what we believe about the future will influence how we live in the present. So the rapture. There is, and it's primarily in the West, in America primarily, North America, there has been, there's been an idea that's emerged over the last couple hundred years called the rapture. It typically comes from a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view of the end. In some, basically this view believes that Jesus' followers will be taken away from the earth, snatched away, and that there'll be a time of tribulation before there will be judgment. The common thing with this is, are you ready? Anybody, Larry Norman, DC Talk did it in the 90s. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Nobody? No evangelical kids from the 90s. I wish. Everybody pulled out their, no, they didn't pull out their lighters at DC Talk. I think, not their phones. I don't know what we did. We had nothing, right? It's all good. Um, this idea that the church is going to be kind of snatched away. The Latin word here is raptus, snatched up or caught up. What's interesting is that, can I just let you know, the church did not believe this for 1,800 years. And when that happens, we should always ask questions about that, why the early church fathers very rarely talked about a rapture. I, those are questions. Anytime we have things that are new, I think every, obviously we're doing this series, everything should be put on the table, but if the church hasn't believed something corporate, remember we're a part of something beautiful and long and patient. If the church hasn't believed something for a couple hundred years and then all of a sudden it's kind of the new thing, and there's other things, I think, in our cultural moment, we need to think through, we need to think through these things. For example, very little was said before the 1800s around the rapture. It actually became popular in the 1830s. In Ireland, there was this group of dispensationalists in the 1820s, and they were fascinated with the return of Jesus. Like the early church, they were believing that Jesus was going to return. So in a prayer meeting in Ireland, there was a young girl, I think she was a teenager, who had a prophetic word that a secret rapture was going to happen and followers of Jesus were going to be caught up into heaven. It was popularized then by a guy who came to America. His name was John Darby in America. And as you know, over the last 150 to 200 years, it has become a very American, North American theology. But honestly, when you travel the world, and some of you guys have, and if you traveled in the church, it's not much a thing outside of North America. And this, like, so you're like, dude, I just finished Left Behind, like all 45 books of Left Behind, and you're telling me the rest of the world, and by the way, if you read that, it's amazing. There's no, I'm not, yeah, I'm with, yeah, it's good. But um, most people then travel outside of North American kind of popularized Christian culture, and they realize that this is not a thing. Like the Left Behind series sold 600 million copies, um, and I know there was a f film later on with Kurt Cameron. Yeah, baby. Seaver, the Seavers, just the reincarnation of the Seavers. And then a 2014 film with Nick Cage. And I hardly knew this. Nick Cage came out with a, a Left Behind film, which is absolutely amazing. Kind of at the end of his career. <laughs> and, you know, there is pastors allowed to... No, sorry. I'm sorry. 
Uh, a lady named Katie Coyle, she wrote a book about a decade ago called Vivian Apple at the End of the World. Here's the, the summary or the write-up of her book. What if your parents converted to a religion that predicted an imminent rapture and you decided not to join them? Then one day, you come home like Drew Fess in grade seven to find mom and dad gone, leaving two holes in the ceiling of the bedroom. Vivian's faith is not believing the prophecy of beaten Frick who, and is shaken, and she no longer has parents. The 17-year-old is thrown into a new world without her parents where she needs to survive with the others who didn't follow the way. And Coyle actually wrote this book after reading an article by a guy named Harold Camping, who has had a history over the last couple decades of prophesying when the world was going to end. And by the way, I think we're past the third one, so I think when Jesus says no one knows the time or the hour, I think we should follow Jesus and not Harold Camping. Anybody with me? All right? So, okay, so maybe I'm making light, and maybe, honestly, part of me is I want to be fair. Um, because this is actually something that I've changed in and totally cool. Let's put everything out on the table beyond kind of the hysteria of uh, eschatological kind of frenzy and getting all in involved with these kind of things. Let's just ask a couple questions from the Bible. There are a couple of passages that people have leaned into around the rapture to come up with this theology. And I think at times you read these at cursory reading, and you go, oh, this, this sounds kind of right. Let's look at them. If you have a Bible, Matthew 24, you want to read along, it's going to be on the screen. Let's look at these two passages and just look at what they say. Sound like a plan? Hanging in there? Michigan won big yesterday, guys. You should be very happy. You should be very happy. And nobody cares. Nobody cares. Matthew 24, this is a, a prominent passage that many people look to around the end, and this is what Jesus says. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, as it was in the days of Noah. Now listen, listen closely here, because if Jesus is bringing up Noah, he's talking about judgment from the Old Testament, okay? So listen in. As it was with the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they know nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the end and the coming of the Son of Man. Two men, this is the Larry Norman song, right? This is, he's ripping off the lyrics here. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. So Jesus is giving a picture. Two will be working, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not left his house and broken into it. So you must be ready. Next slide. Can you go to the next slide? Verse 42. Therefore, Jesus says, Keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house been broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now to me, and I think this is explicitly clear, 
Jesus is returning, and he's going to set up his kingdom here forever. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it is not fully experienced or realized. And so Jesus is speaking of a time when he, he doesn't even know the hour, when the Son of Man will come and do this. But a lot of people have looked at like, okay, the two people in the field and two people working together and one is snatched away and one is not. And a lot of people have taken it very literally to say, okay, Jesus is, anybody who follows Jesus and is right with him, Jesus is going to come and he is going to snap them away from earth to heaven. I want you to notice a couple things here though. These people in the story, the parable that Jesus is telling are taken. It doesn't say where they're taken doesn't say they're taken to heaven. But here's the thing that I always missed until the last number of years. Here's a question for you. Is taken a good thing or a bad thing in the scripture? So many of us have come around rapture theology and taken is a good thing. We're taken away to be with Jesus in heaven, though it doesn't say that at all. But when you read the scriptures, and in light of judgment, and even Jesus bringing up Noah as the, the kind of the case study for this, is take, being taken away a good thing or a bad thing, a negative thing? Throughout the scriptures, I just want to let you know, you do not want to be taken, right? And a lot of us haven't thought through, like when it comes to Noah, all the way through when it comes to judgment, you, taken is for judgment, and that has typically been a negative thing. I'll just look at the entire story together. Um, Maybe this happens, but I know a lot of people will push back and say, be careful that taken, you view taken as a positive thing because throughout history and throughout the scriptures, taken has often been a negative thing. Now, here's the other question. Who do you want to be with? I'm just, I'll ask myself that question. Drew, who do you want to be with? Well, Drew, I want to be with Jesus. And we have to ask the question, where is Jesus going? Here. Jesus is, Jesus is coming here to renew everything. I, I always think, I don't want to be going in the air one way while Jesus is going the other. You know what I'm saying? I want to be with him. And I just need to, I think we need to actually think through that as people. I want to be where Jesus is. And if this is a passage about judgment, we need to take it seriously. And to be taken is actually a negative thing throughout the context of the scriptures. You with me? You don't have to buy it, but just nod your head with me if you're with me. You understand what I'm trying to, you picking up what I'm putting down? You know what I'm saying? Okay, here's the other one. First Thessalonians. This is a big one. Thessalonians. First and second Thessalonians were written very early, the earliest after the life of Jesus. There's a lot of themes in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that we don't have time to talk about, but there was a lot of Christians in Thessalonica that literally believed that Jesus was going to return like tomorrow. And we believe Jesus is, is going to return, but they were like on the edge of their seats in their moment thinking the Spirit's been poured out and now Jesus is going to return. So Paul has to write them and he has to say this, 1st Thessalonians 4, 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's talking about resurrection. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up 
caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So a lot of people that read now a couple thousand years later would go, look, whoop, there it is, right? We're going to be caught up with Jesus in the clouds. We're going to be raptured away. And this is how, just like Elias is being raptured away right now. It's good. He's going to, yeah, it's good. Um, So people would read this in the literal sense. Jesus is going to take us up into the clouds. And for many, this means taking us away to heaven. The problem, again, there's a couple problems that could be here. One, Jesus is coming here, not taking us somewhere else. That's the theme of the whole new creation story. The other thing, though, for a lot of Western people is resurrection is actually bodily resurrection. And for a lot of Western Christians, we think resurrection is going to heaven when we die, but resurrection always means bodily resurrection. I, I just a, a stat, two-thirds of Americans that believe in resurrection do not believe you will have a resurrected body. Two-thirds. And so we're kind of caught in this whole world of like, we're going to just kind of be taken away just from this verse. But as always, what do we do here in our teaching and when we come around the scriptures? We read things in context. There you go. You're with me. Context. Just as we read and we read, tried to read the creation account a few weeks ago in context, here's a little bit of context around the ideas in this passage. In this passage, there are, just go back one for a sec, go back to the text. In this passage, there are tons of imperial overtones. So when Paul writes, oftentimes, and it's sneaky good, he's throwing down on Caesar. It's amazing when you read it actually in context. And what he does is he uses royal language to speak of things uh, in that culture. So clouds were always, not to us, but in that culture were always the appearing of God. The trumpet was always in that culture, the sounding of an important event. He, when you read the word archangel, that was always meant for the people in its time as the end of human history. This, what we're reading here, is actually incredibly hopeful that the king is going to return. And one thing that's really unique in that culture is when our king returns, we're actually, I think, going to follow him into the city. So if you were in the Roman Empire and Caesar came to your little town or village, what would happen is the entire town or village would get up, they would go outside the city, and they would usher Caesar in. Now, what do you think Paul is trying to say? Yeah, baby, when Jesus returns, just get the imagery of all of those whose allegiance is in him and followers of him, ushering him back into the world that he created. How, I mean, when I began to read it like this, instead of fear and, oh my goodness, my parents are actually at the freaking metro and I'm like living, oh my goodness, what's going to happen with me? Imagine if we told this story of we're the ones that are going to usher the king back in. Clouds, the imagery, all of that stuff, you can read it in your, our Western framework, and that's fine, but we've got to remember, this was written a couple thousand years ago, and there is deep meaning in these things that really set it alive for us. As Caesar would go and declare a victory, the whole city would come and usher him in, and I actually believe this is what we're going to do with King Jesus. He is going to, to rule and reign, and I want to be where he is, and he's coming back here. Somebody with me? Nobody's with me. Okay, maybe you're with me. This is so amazing. The, the hope that is littered all throughout this is so amazing. Now think, think about the, tri- think about the triumphal entry. 
what happened there. Right? Like, any thinking person after time would go, well, where did the logistics of a parade, where did the palm branches come from? And where did all, all the things come from? And why were the people ready? Is because when a king came to a city, you ushered him in. Guys, this is what we're doing. This is actually what we're doing now with our lives. We're, I believe we're ushering him in now. But when he decides to return and set up shop forever and rid the world of injustice and hate and evil and everything that we see, we will usher him in. So with this in mind, I think this is probably talking about the second, the bigger picture is not necessarily a rapture, and you can land there, that's fine, but is more, I think, about the second coming of Christ. Jesus left in the sky, and he's returning in the sky. And Paul is saying that when the king of the universe arrives, we will usher him into this world. And this is ultimately advocating that God is fully going to redeem this beautiful world. World. So I want to be where Jesus is, and I know you do too. So we need to think of it in light of that. Then at the end of Revelation, it says, uh, the, the vision is, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there was no longer any sea. Now with this particular passage, just, just think for a second because a lot of people go, see, the whole thing is going to be thrown out. But what's interesting is there are layers in the New Testament to this word new. Sometimes you read the word neos, is it there? Is it there? Neos, which means new in time, or other times the scriptures will use the word kainos, which is new in nature. So when we read the word neos, basically that means new from the beginning, like brand new, like something material from, from brand new. But anybody ever done a home renovation? Oh, anybody? Yeah, baby, it's fun. Um, or you've repaired a chair, or you've repaired something, you've taken something that was material, and you've made it new again. That's kainos. Guess what it talks, guess what word is used at the end of the story here in Revelation 21 and 22? Kainos. God is going, he's not throwing this present world out, but he's going to come and renew and redeem this current earth, and he's going to usher in his kingdom. And this is why I'm here on a Sunday morning. I'm a skeptic at heart. I Listen, there's football on at one. I could be doing it, and you could be doing other things. This is what gets me out of bed in the morning, is the hopefulness of this beautiful story. So people often ask about the rapture. You, listen, we can come from all different perspectives, but I think a, I just want to push people to read in context some of the passages we've talked and used traditionally to escape. Um, let's not, can I just encourage us, I don't know how everything's going to end up, but I don't want us to be escapists. I want us to be fully rooted in this present reality, knowing that Jesus is going to return. There's not, nothing worse than kind of just holding on. I mean, we hold on with hope, but there's not, nothing worse than thinking that God's just going to throw this out. Every dollar you give, every initiative you're a part of, everything that you do, every second you serve our junior highs and our kids, every time you serve another ministry organization in the city is not for loss. Are you with me? Like, this is not going to just be thrown out at the end. Some of you guys work in not-for-profits. Everything, every second of your life matters because Jesus is coming here and we're joining him in that. Oh, this is so good. You with me? You're a quiet bunch. You're a quiet bunch. It's all good. Okay, the other thing is the apocalypse. You know, we're, we're fashion, what is it, War of the Worlds? Is that Tom Cruise where the machines take over and people, <laughs> nobody cares. All right. Um, you know, we, we have these movies, we have these uh, films in our head that just kind of shape us around the end of the earth, and then everybody looks at this word apocalypse and thinks it means something that it doesn't. I don't know if you know this, the word apocalypsis is the very first Greek word 
in the letter of Revelation. And here's what apocalypsis doesn't mean. It doesn't mean destruction or the end of the world. It doesn't mean zombies. It doesn't mean the walking dead. It doesn't mean machines coming to kill us. Though I saw a video on Twitter that was like a robot that somebody made, and it was pretty crazy. I don't know how real it was, but it got me, okay, a little scared, but I'm not just joking. The first word in the book of Revelation is apocalypsis, and here's what it means. It simply means unveiling or revealing. So instead of getting all fanatical about Revelation, the very first Greek word in there is just that this is actually the apocalypse of Jesus. It's the unveiling or the revealing of who Jesus, it may, uh, who Jesus is. Apocalypsis is the sudden unveiling or of the precisely hidden truth. It's not a violent or disturbing event that actually happens in the end like a natural disaster, earthquake, or volcano. Some people, when they talk about apocalypse, they talk about a tsunami or, or other major horrific human events. Here's what it's like. It's like cutting into the cake at the gender reveal party. It's like the groom pulling up the veil of his bride on their wedding day. This is what apocalypse actually means. It's a revealing. Actually, one, and it's, we're going to talk about Revelation in a minute. You know, people have all sorts of ideas about Revelation, and that's totally cool. But if we could just keep before us that it's actually what Revelation is trying to do is unveil who Jesus is for us, that would really help us in our moment. The other challenges, though, is you get things like Daniel and Revelation. You get these things in your hand, and they are apocalyptic literature, which in the West, honestly, we're not very comfortable with, nor do we have it in our moment. The tricky thing is that apocalyptic literature was a genre of literature, and it was popular anywhere from about 200 years before Jesus to 200 years after Jesus. So this was very, like, this kind of literature was very ingrained in them as a community in the first century, and especially for the Jewish people. So what we do is we kind of take a Western approach to things in apocalyptic literature when they would understand images and signs and all sorts of things going on. And it's, it uses, apocalyptic literature, like Revelation, uses signs, images, and symbols that are not literal, but are telling a certain story. And we're a little bit removed from that in our time. As Westerners, we have failed at times, I would say, with apocalyptic literature, but as well with the book of Revelation. A lot of people, and come on somebody, the laser pointers from my childhood, right? The guy comes in with the charts. A lot of people have taken every image and symbol literally. But here's the thing, you know this. We don't read everything literally. You know, there's an image in the uh, book of Revelation that Jesus is like a lamb. Well, do we believe G Jesus is like, bah, right? No, we don't believe Jesus was a literal lamb. We don't read everything. So people are funny with the Bible. We read everything literally. It just said Jesus was a lamb. Do you believe Jesus was a lamb? Well, obviously not. No, no. Nobody reads everything literally. He wasn't literally a lamb. It's imagery that's given to him to tell a particular story. And so people always ask me, and we did a series on this a few years ago on Revelation, and it was probably one of the most beautiful times in my life, because I think when you come around it properly, it's a letter for us now in our moment as exiles, as people who are on the margins. It was ultimately written. The revelation of Jesus was given to this guy named John. We're not exactly sure which John. John was a, a popular name in the first century. 
It could have been the disciple John. We're just not entirely sure. But either way, it was a vision given to him about how disciples can live faithfully in their moment. But there's a lot of things in it, a lot of imageries and signs and different things within it that make it very tricky, and sometimes it gets maybe put in the hands of the wrong people. So people will ask me, how should we read Revelation? Well, there's four different ways, and we've talked about this in the past. There's four particular ways that I think people tend to read Revelation. This is in a book, by the way, published by Zondervan on the few, four views of Revelation, and I spent a lot of time a few years ago just wrestling through this. So one is the preterist view, the preterist view. The preterist view sees the book of Revelation being totally historically fulfilled in the first century. There's this event in 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem, where Rome went in with Caesar and destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. And what a lot of us don't realize is that for the Jewish community, guess what the end of the world was? The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This event for them, losing their land, their temple, everything again, was the apocalyptic event for them in their time. So the end of the world for us is something in the future. The end of the world for them and a lot of the prophecy and a lot of the things going on and the imageries and signs, a lot of people in the preterist view, and by the way, I hinge to this view a lot, believe that what happened in Revelation in context already happened. And I actually believe a lot of what we read in Revelation has already happened. Don't go looking for like, pictures in the clouds. This idea of 70 AD and the fall of Jerusalem, a lot of what I think we read in Revelation has already, already happened. So this particular view, and I don't fully sync up with it entirely, but they would believe everything that Revelation is speaking about has already happened. Two is the idealist view. And this is more a view that views Revelation as a poem or allegory. It's not literal. It's telling a story. It describes universal and spiritual truths that apply throughout time but don't contain future prophetic predictions in the first century and beyond. So it's more allegory in this view, in the idealist view. And then the third view is the prevailing view that we're in right now, the futurist view, or what we know as the dispensationalist view, which dispensation just means chunk of time. This view believes that the book of Revelation is about the future and future events. This has become popular in North America. Can I say it again? I've said it a lot. It tries to figure out what events it is referring to in our present time, a lot of people will say you read the book of Revelation and you read, you know, you have your newspaper in the other hand as things kind of begin to unfold. Harold Camping we have, making predictions and all sorts of stuff. And you can make all, the, this group, uh, in, in its attempt to look at future events, tends at times to make Revelation say all sorts of things. They would ultimately believe that the book of Revelation, though it was written in the first century, was written for a different dispensation of time, a different chunk of time, which is the, maybe you've heard it, which is the end times of kind of what we're in, this dispensation. All right? So preterist, idealist, you hanging in with me? Smile, make sure, yes, I see your beautiful teeth. It's great. The dispensational futurist view. And then the fourth view is this, and I do not like the name, but this is the name they gave it to in this particular book, and people will use this. This name is the progressive dispensational view. Now, I don't like either of those terms, uh, progressive or dispensational, but this particular view balances the tension of the now and the not yet. So this age and the age to come that is leaking into the present age. 
you know, uh, this view would believe that it has application for the original audience. So when John got this vision of Jesus, it was applicable for him at his moment because he was on an island exiled trying to figure out if he was going to live and trying to get this into the hands of other Jesus followers. And it's for us today, which I actually, this is what I lean into. What it does is this view resists a literal interpretation and looks at its bigger themes for here and now. And I, you can land wherever you want with this, but that final one is kind of where I personally have gravitated towards because I do believe there's tension. I do believe there was stuff for them in that moment, and we'll talk about it in a second. And then that means that I can pick it up a couple thousand years later and mean that it says something for me today, but it all, I, doesn't always mean kind of what we think as far as how it's all gonna shape up in the literal sense, like a beast and four horsemen coming out of a lake and all sorts of stuff. There were certain images in those moments that made sense to them. And so one of the questions that, you hanging with me? One of the questions I always ask is, what would have made most sense for the original audience? Well, here's what would make most sense. This was given, this vision, and it was written to encourage the Christian community to be faithful in a severe time of persecution. Huge persecution going on through a guy named um, Domitian, and maybe another guy you've heard of, another Roman Empire named Nero. Not, you think it's hard to be a Christian today? It's not. That, in those moments, Christians being killed upside down on crosses. And, you know, sometimes you come into Roman cities and there would literally be Christians along the way being persecuted on crosses. And they would put it at eye level for people just so you know who was in charge. And that was Caesar. Now, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Pick up Revelation and read it in its anti-imperial overtones. Oh my, OM, in our house we say OMGG, oh my goodness gracious, right? When you, when you read it then, oh, I used to be afraid of Revelation. It is like my favorite now because I understand now more what it's saying. So things like this. The serpent is the Satan. The beast, there is no doubt when you read it in its context, when they're talking about the beast, it's Caesar. Babylon, you hear about Babylon all over the place in it, is talking about Rome. It's code for the, especially the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians, for Rome. You know, it's interesting in that culture that they literally thought that Domitian was the second coming of Nero. Things like the mark of the beast, 666, right? So we're all afraid of, you know, the big thing in the 90s and 2000s was debit cards. Debit cards were going to be the mark of the beast. They were coming for you. They were going to get your information. And they were now, now it's like screen technology. They're going to follow you and don't take the mark. Like there were literally people I knew that didn't want to get a debit card. How convenient is a debit card? Why would you not get a debit card, right? Because it's the mark, right? Everybody's worried about the mark. Do you know what the mark of the beast was? In the Agora to trade and sell in the Agora in Rome, you had to bow your knee and take the mark of Caesar to do these things. There was a mark. What's interesting is that in Hebrew, letters were also numbers, or numbers were also letters. Do you know what 666 actually can be translated as? Caesar Nero. So all of the things we want to take in the 21st century and make it for us here and now, there was a particular thing happening in that culture. And I actually believe that one of the things you have all this code language for is because they felt if Rome got their hands on this revelation from Jesus, they would know what's going on. But it, just think, 
It was probably written in a way to confuse the Roman Empire. Think about now, like 2,000 years later, what it would do to us. Anybody with me? And I just think, man, when you think of it like this, the subversity of this letter is incredible as the community tried to pass this around and share this revelation of Jesus and share what God was doing in the world. I know some of your minds are being blown right now, and it just makes me feel really, really good inside. So cities in the Roman Empire were often um, personified as a woman. It's interesting that Rome doesn't appear in this letter as the goddess Roma, but what does the writer say of Rome? That she's what? A whore. Boom. Babylon the Great, the mother of whores, it calls the city. And Babylon, in this letter, is a contrast of what? The New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem that the Christians are hoping for is contrasting Babylon. And so to disassociate from Babylon meant showing an alternative, this new city that would come and renew and restore all things. And ultimately, the alternative in the book of Revelation is this eschatological future, this beauty in following the Lamb, God's alternative city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. How cool is that? And so listen, when they got it in the first century, I believe they were thinking certain things when they got this. Babylon was Rome. The beast was Caesar, and Caesar, he was, trust me, he was a beast. And so we just just need to think about this, and when we talk about the apocalypse and people always have all sorts of questions and we're trying to scratch the surface here, I think one of the big things, as always, is to kind of read this stuff in context. And I'll say this, if revelation is the revealing of Jesus, this is what it does. The revelation gets a vision, I think it's in Revelation 5, of Jesus in the throne room. And it talks that Jesus, John, John, who gets this revelation, he hears a lion, he hears the roar of a lion, and then he looks, and what does he see? Anybody know? A slain lamb. Actually, the imagery in Greek is like a little lamb. And that's the picture of Jesus that John gets. He hears one thing, because I think in all of our minds, we want like a devouring lion as a god. Do you know what I'm saying? We want power. We want to follow the one that's powerful and mighty. And John hears, but then he turns and he looks, and what does he see? A slain lamb. The lamb, the picture of Jesus, the unveiling, the revealing, is that even to death, Jesus gave his life. He laid his life so much as this self-sacrificial human for us, fully God, fully human, laying his life down. Here's the picture. I want a lion. I want to follow, follow a devouring lion, and that's not the way Jesus is. Jesus is this little slain lamb who gave his life for all of the world. And I just think we need to read these things with this in mind. What is Revelation saying in the first century, and now what does it say to us today? You with me? Hang in there? Okay, so let's end by saying this, and then we'll come to the tables. This has been fun, no? My week was fun. No, okay. So people will ask, what the hell with all of this? You know, you talk about a rapture, and now you're, you're messing with me. You talk about the apocalypse, and I want to think of, like, zombies, and that doesn't seem to be it. The coming of Jesus. How does this all work together? What are some things that I should believe when it comes to eschatology in the end? Here's four things that I'm just convinced on and I think we should all just really cling to. These are the important, this is the important stuff. Jesus is going to return as king. Come on, somebody. G- Listen, 
no matter how good, how bad things are right now, the hope for the early Christians is they didn't have all, maybe all the, the things that we've talked about figured out, but the thing that they held to is Jesus is going to return as king. Kanye may even have it right now. I don't even know, but you know, he's writing music, maybe. Jesus is going to return as king. Two, here's something that is very, seems to be very clear in scripture. Humanity will be resurrected and we will be resurrected to glorified bodies. We will have, sometimes we think of, especially in the Western world, that we're disembodied. I think the scriptures, the Jewish interpretation, the interpretation of the scriptures, we will be resurrected. Humanity will be resurrected. Three, here's the thing. Jesus will judge humanity at resurrection. You know, so, you know, one of the things we say is, well, like, we don't need to live in fear, but that doesn't escape the reality that Jesus is going to judge. The great judge is going to, he's going to judge. And I always think, you know, that could be a fearful thing, but I'm on God's side. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of that. I'm with him. He's done his, I've lent into his work. He's my king. I'm following him. I'm not fearful of that. Now I'll say this. If you're not on God's side, if you're opposed to the way of Jesus, that could be a fearful thing because we, listen, we talk about early in this teaching about fear and how we don't need to live in fear. But that could, be fe- that could build fear, not being on God's side. You think if you read the Psalms, the people who are not on God's side, yikes! I just think, man, I want to be with him. I want to be on his, his side. And by the way, his judgment is not to just like angrily send people somewhere. He's inviting and coercing people to come in to his kingdom, but he's not going to force anybody. We have wills that... I believe Jesus is not necessarily going to override. He's given us free choice, and you and I can do what we want, but I just know for myself, I want to be, I want to be on his side. So Jesus is going to come as king. Humanity will be resurrected. Jesus will judge humanity at resurrection, and then the consummation of the kingdom and God's total salvation is experienced in the new heavens and the new earth, which simply means Jesus is coming here to set up shop, here He's going to renew the world. He's going to set people free. When we talk about salvation, we often talk of it about, hey, I'm I'm saved because I follow Jesus. And we should use that language, absolutely. But you know that salvation, the primary language for salvation was what? In the end, God was going to save. So I'm saved. You and I, if you follow Jesus, we're saved, brothers and sisters. But there will be a day where we will be saved. Every wrong will be righted. Every tear will be wiped away. Every injustice, our planet, as we talk next week about climate change and the things that we're, you know, we potentially can be doing to our planet, that we would, we would see God renew all of these things. And so these are the, the things I think we need to hold on to as we root ourselves in a city and as we follow Jesus. And maybe the question for us this morning is, whose side are you on? Are you following Jesus with your life? I would encourage us, if we're not, that Jesus is inviting you and I to follow him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I just, here's my thing. A guy named N.T. Wright has changed my world with this stuff over the last 10 years. This is hopeful. Everything we've been talking about is so, so hopeful. The story we press into is so hopeful when we look at it through this lens.